Welcome to Daily Drive for Thursday, August 3rd, 2023. I'm Jamie Butters, Executive Editor of Automotive News here in Detroit. And I'm Kellen Walker in Las Vegas. Today on the show, Chevy cancels the entry-level trim on the Blazer EV. Tesla now faces a class action lawsuit over its driving range claims. And self-driving truck company Aurora raises more than $850 million. Plus, we'll dig into the UAW's big demands of Detroit 3 automakers with our own Michael Martinez. I think there is a real risk, a real danger here of not being able to ratify a deal because you were so transparent and you raised those expectations so high. Let's run through all the news you need to know to keep up in the auto industry. Chevrolet has decided not to build an entry-level 1LT trim on the new 2024 Blazer EV. The move pushes the starting price of the electric midsize crossover above the $45,000 mark that it originally was targeting. Chevy says a front-wheel drive version of the Blazer EV 2LT, scheduled to arrive next year, will be the base model instead. Blazer EV shipments to dealerships began this week with an all-wheel drive RS trim that starts at more than sixty grand, including shipping. The brand did not say what the new starting price for the nameplate will be. Chevy said last summer when revealing the Blazer EV that the front-wheel drive 2LT was expected to start around 48000 The brand said this week that a 2LT with all-wheel drive will go into production this fall at a price of about $57,000, including shipping. A Chevy spokesperson tells us at Automotive News that the brand thinks higher trim levels on the upcoming Equinox EV will meet the needs of potential Blazer EV1 LT buyers, and it, quote, gives us room to position and market the vehicles without overlap. Three Tesla owners in California are suing the automaker in a proposed class action over its battery range claims. The suit accuses the company of falsely advertising the estimated driving ranges of its electric vehicles. The lawsuit alleged Tesla breached vehicle warranties and engaged in fraud and unfair competition. The lawsuit in the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of California cites a Reuters article published last week. It reported that Tesla created a diversion team in Nevada to cancel as many range-related appointments as possible after becoming inundated with owner complaints. Reuters also reported that about a decade ago, Tesla decided to write algorithms for its in-dash range meter that would show drivers rosy projections for the distance the car could travel on a full battery. Automotive technology supplier Aptiv raised its full-year net sales forecast today as the auto parts supplier gains from price hikes and strong demand. The company says second-quarter net income surged to almost $230 million from a $61 million net loss a year ago. Revenue improved 28% to $5.2 billion. Aptiv counts General Motors, Ford, and Tesla among its customers. It now expects net sales for the year to rise to between $19.9 billion and $20.3 billion. That's up from its previous range of $18.7 billion to $19.3 billion. And self-driving truck startup Aurora Innovation has added $853 million to its coffers. That's at a time when most other competitors are struggling and scaling back or curtailing their plans. Aurora CEO Chris Ermson 
says the increase comes from underwriters exercising an option to purchase additional shares within 30 days of the initial offering. With the capital infusion, Aurora expects to have $1.6 billion to carry the company through its planned commercial launch at the end of 2024 and into the second half of 2025. The announcement comes a week after a major competitor, Waymo, said it would scale back its trucking efforts to focus on robo-taxis. Other competitors like Embark and Locomation stopped operations in recent months, while Too Simple is exploring a sale of its U.S. assets. And those are today's headlines. Jamie, how big do you think this Tesla class action suit can become? I mean, class action lawsuits, people usually settle and everyone goes on their way. But with fraud being involved, what's the potential of something bigger? You know, I, I, I'm not a lawyer. Um, I'm not even a great prognosticator of most things, but especially on the law, I, I, I don't want to get too far over my skis. I think you're right. They do often settle and they can often be paid out, even if it's thousands of dollars to many thousands of customers, could be in the form of a voucher toward your next Tesla in a way that almost works as an incentive for future sales. What I do know, what I do expect out of this is that Whatever comes from the class action lawsuit will only be the tip of the iceberg. We're likely to hear about shareholder lawsuits. There could be an SEC investigation surrounding the misrepresentation of, of the mileage and what that means about the whole value of the company and its products. And of course, on top of all that, you've got all these incumbent automakers you know, going after Tesla. Tesla is still the dominant EV player. But everyone's getting in that market. And every time there's stories out about Tesla not being honest about the range of their vehicles, it hurts that brand and it helps everyone else. Interested to see in the upcoming months what this turns into. Coming up, we'll talk in depth about the UAW's public list of demands for Detroit 3 automakers with automotive news reporter Michael Martinez. That's next on Daily Drive. Hi, I'm Pete Bigelow host of Shift, a podcast about mobility from Automotive News. Each week, I bring you a conversation with leaders who are on the cutting edge of transportation, like this one with consultant and strategist Salika Josiah Talbot. The technologists are forcing themselves in a space that they shouldn't be. And I think the social scientists and politicians are falling down on the job. To hear more about the new technology and policy reshaping the way people and goods move around, join me on Shift. New episodes each Sunday on autonews.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Daily Drive. I'm Jamie Butters with Kellen Walker. Double-digit wage gains, elimination of wage tiers, and restoring pensions to all workers, those are just three of the UAW's list of 10 primary demands of the Detroit three automakers in this year's contract negotiations. New President Sean Fain took to Facebook Live this week to announce the demands, which he called, quote, the most audacious and ambitious list of proposals they've seen in decades. And in addition to those 10, he also rattled off any number of other demands. I talked about it with reporter Michael Martinez, who covers the UAW and Ford Motor Company for us here at Automotive News. I reached him at his home office in Detroit. Michael Martinez, welcome back to Daily Drive. Thanks for having me. You're becoming like a, a, a co-host almost. Uh, we're talking so much about the UAW these days. It's fun times. It's uh, very interesting times for sure. So just this week, UAW President Sean Fain returned to Facebook Live, which has been 
really his preferred venue for reaching uh, members and communicating with them in real time, which is kind of an interesting uh, departure from his predecessors, uh, certainly seems to be trying to be a lot more open and communicative uh, with the members and I guess even arguably with the media. But this week's uh, Facebook Live, it, he really laid out some big ambitions. Tell me, tell me what that was about. Sure. He presented the members with what he's calling the members' demands. And not only is this a continuation of his efforts to be more transparent, this is really a continuation of his efforts to do the negotiations differently. Typically, the union always formally presents a set of economic demands to the automakers that traditionally happens behind closed doors, and they're apparently called the president's demands. Well, Fain is renaming them the members' demands because he's here to fight for the workers. And they were a list of 10 bullet points that he shared with everybody on social media, really talking a lot about things we've discussed at length already, things like eliminating tiers, restoring pensions, restoring cost of living adjustments. There were a couple of things on there that, he hasn't talked about before, and we're quite frankly a surprise. One of them really came off sounding to a lot of us who've been around uh, UAW issues for a while as sounding like a return of what was known as the Jobs Bank. Explain what what he proposed and how that is like the Jobs Bank, and maybe why that's a concern. Sure. So he's calling, he's asking, demanding what he's calling a working family protection program. Now, he didn't give too many details here. He just talked about it for a couple minutes, but he essentially said he wants to protect workers if there's a downturn or if the automakers close a plant. And he said if that were the case under this plan, they would have to, quote, pay UAW members to do community service work or other things, end quote. Now, this essentially sounds like the Jobs Bank reincarnated. That was something originally proposed in the 1980s. And there were some good intentions behind it. At the time, the D3 were under threat from transplant automakers. Uh, they knew they needed to get more competitive, more efficient, and they didn't want to scare workers off with the potential threat of layoffs. So they created this jobs bank to say, if you are laid off, you will continue to receive most of your pay until we can reassign you other work. Now, in reality, especially during the Great Recession, what ended up happening was Ford, GM, and Chrysler at the time were paying hundreds of millions of dollars to workers to literally sit around and not work. And that was something that was really a burden to these companies when they were trying to shed costs. And it was eliminated in 2009 during the restructurings, the bankruptcies, the Great Recession. Now, it's pretty obvious that the companies probably wouldn't want to add a cost like that back in today, although seems the union's going to push for that. It's interesting. You know, it was an issue even in the decade preceding the uh, Great Recession, <laughs> because uh, as I used to joke in those times, you know, when the automakers would close a plant, they would always take a, a charge against earnings for one-time items. And I was like, these aren't one-time items. This is your core business is shutting plants. Uh, because they did it so routinely, GM and Ford especially, but uh, the former Chrysler or uh, part of Daimler Chrysler was in that routine a lot. And so, it, you know, there was a need, arguably, for some cushion for the workers. 
but it was an ongoing burden for the automakers. They try to right-size their operations to get to where their actual market demand was. And then they would have all these workers they were paying that added more cost to what they could make. So then they were less competitive and needed to close more plants. And it was a, a vicious cycle for sure. I'm glad you mentioned the transplants. Of course, you know, Toyota especially, but really the transplants have had a record in the U.S. of you know, zero to, to few uh, layoffs or idlings or just straight up job cuts. So that was a concern. But what we've seen like at Toyota, when they have downtime, the people stay, they work on their work areas. They, they clean the floors, they develop new Kaizens and ways to, to make the plant more efficient. And what, you know, GM and, and Ford used to have so many workers on the jobs bank for so long that they didn't have enough community projects for them to do. They didn't have enough manufacturing improvements for them to do. And they end up paying them to sit around and do crossword puzzles or play euchre. And it was really embarrassing for everybody. You know, to your point about the threat of layoffs, again, Sean Fain didn't expressly say this, but in the past, you know, the unions really held up this EV transition as a potential threat, right? As the automakers essentially build fewer gas cars, they may need to close plants or repurpose plants since these EVs take less, you know, have less parts, have less labor content, they would you know, in theory, need fewer workers. So this could be an effort by them to maybe guard against any potential layoffs that we would see in the future. It is worth noting, though, heading into negotiations this round, aside from Belvedere, which happened a bit before, you could argue, we're not seeing the D3 threaten to close any plants right now. Uh, Obviously, four years ago, GM gave that list with four or five plants they wanted to close. We're not seeing that this time. So it could be a future issue, at least in the the immediate near term, not so much right now. Right. No, it's interesting. uh, It's definitely looking at the problems of the future. Right now, they're building up the battery plants and the EV plants while keeping most of the gasoline vehicle plants. At some point, those other, those uh, maybe leaner EV plants will be running full speed and they might start wanting to slow things down or, or closing some of the other ones. And, and that is a, a long range concern, probably even something beyond the four years of this contract, uh, but something maybe they want to talk about. For sure. So the other thing, there were the, you know, the 10 main demands, you know, wages, benefits, pensions, this renamed jobs bank. And then there were some, of course, there are a whole laundry list of requests, demands, whatever you call them in a given cycle. Uh, one of them that he mentioned, made mention of was the idea of a 32-hour work week. How might that work? Well, again, we don't really have too much information here. This was almost a throwaway line. It was at the end of this Facebook Live stream, and he was reading member questions, uh, member comments, and he was responding to one, and he said that, oh, yeah, we're going to push, by the way, push hard for a 32-hour work week. I'm not exactly sure how that would work out, especially when, on the flip side of that coin, they're arguing they're going to push hard for uh, drastic reduction and very strict rules around the use of temporary workers. So one would think that if you're going to ask your full-time workers to work less, a few hours per week, maybe if you're an automaker, maybe you want more latitude to fill in with temps. Uh, But seems like the union's going to come at that from both ends. Uh, I'm not sure how that would work. 
uh, quite frankly, the, the union hasn't really expanded on that yet. From the automaker perspective, I'm not sure if that's even something they would entertain as a serious thought, or if it's just one of those wish list items that maybe you use for the automakers to say no to, and then maybe you have a little more leverage on some other items uh, to find compromise on. I'm not sure. I can imagine a few uh, sarcastic comments from automakers who are frustrated by routine absenteeism, saying that a lot of workers are putting in 32-hour weeks uh, as it is. But uh, you're right, that definitely tends to lead to more use of, of temps. And I don't know, there could be some creative scheduling, but it would be a big shift in the nature of, of factory work in America if the UAW got the Detroit 3 to go to a, a four-day work week. And let's be honest, the UAW is really the reason why we have some of these basic work tenants that this country has had for decades. And Sean Fain and his leadership team have talked a lot, sort of high-minded ideals about reestablishing what the UAW stands for and getting back in the fight and being there for the workers. And this could be a reflection of that. Maybe this maybe this is their version of the five-day work week that they won all those years ago. It remains to be seen whether or not that'll actually work out. Before I let you go, I get I just want to get, you know, some thoughts. I don't know what you've been hearing from people in terms of, you know, I think it's it's a, a noble effort to try to be more public and and more transparent in in all that that the union is asking for. Uh, but is there a risk of setting the members' hopes too high and that even a, a really good agreement with the automakers could face a lot of member uh, rejection or disappointment, you know, and, and not be able to pass because they think they're going to get a 20% raise and a four-day work week and a pension and healthcare and retirement forever and all that. It's almost a double-edged sword, right? Because as you increase your messaging and your transparency with the membership, more and more members who maybe wouldn't pay attention or wouldn't realize otherwise now see these list of demands. They now hear all the tough talk coming from Sean Fain and the other vice presidents. And now they say, well, hey, yeah, we do deserve pensions. We do deserve COLA. We do deserve double digit wage gains. And if the union isn't able to deliver on all 10 of these bullet points that Fain so publicly released, I think there is a real risk, a real danger here of not being able to ratify a deal because you were so transparent and you raised those expectations so high. It's going to be an issue that they're going to have to contend with because like you said, it's very possible they they come to some compromises on some of these bullet points. It, he wants to eliminate the tier system for wages. It takes eight years to reach top wages. Maybe he cuts that down to four years or two years or one year. That still isn't eliminating it. So if you're a worker, would you even vote yes for that? Even though it would be a major win over what you have now, it's going to be really tough. And we're going to see here in the next couple months. Interesting times. Keep up the great work, Mike. Really appreciate all your coverage on the UAW and, and everything else. Thanks, Jamie. That's Daily Drive for today. I'm Jamie Butters. And I'm Kellen Walker. Thanks to Automotive News Coordinating Producer Jake Neer, as well as our own Lindsey Van Hulley and Karin Dingra for their reporting for today's podcast. You can get the latest news on UAW contract negotiations, EV rollouts, and everything happening in the auto industry at autonews.com. Come back tomorrow for a conversation about the impact of the updated safeguards rule on dealership F&I offices about two months after it took effect. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to like, leave a review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode.